Welcome to One True Podcast. My name is Mark Chirino and my producer is Michael Von Cannon. In his memoir, A Movable Feast, Ernest Hemingway wrote, All you have to do is write one true sentence. Write the truest sentence that you know. So finally, I would write one true sentence and then go on from there. In that same spirit of honesty, creativity, and curiosity, One True Podcast explores all things related to Ernest Hemingway, his life, his work, and his world. Today's show takes Hemingway at his own premise. We ask our guest a very simple question. What is her choice for Hemingway's one true sentence and why? And then, as Hemingway writes, go on from there. We are thrilled to be joined by Verna Kale, one of the most prominent scholars in Hemingway studies. Verna is associate editor of the Hemingway Letters Project, which is already up to volume five in its incredible work. And Verna is co-editing volume six. Among her many publications, she wrote the excellent recent biography of Hemingway for the Critical Live series. I'm happy to say that I met Verna when she wrote her great chapter for Ernest Hemingway and the Geography of Memory, which seems like a long, long time ago. Uh, Verna, thank you so much for joining us on One True Podcast and playing One True Sentence. Thanks for letting me join. Well, it's great to have you. And why don't we start with your One True Sentence? I wouldn't say from an aesthetic viewpoint that this is my favorite sentence, that it's the most beautiful sentence Hemingway ever wrote, but it's one that has always uh, stuck out for me, even bothered me. It's very moving, and at the same time, it makes me very uncomfortable. This is a sentence from Soldier's Home, and it comes uh, toward the end of the story when Harold Krebs uh, is with his mother and she asks him, uh, you know, don't you love your mother? And he says, no. And she says to him, and this is my one true sentence, I'm your mother, she said. I held you next to my heart when you were a tiny baby. What a moment in that story. So what is it about it that strikes you? What makes you feel uncomfortable? What is it doing in the plot of that story, Soldier's Home? This is a a sentence that makes me feel things, um, but it makes me not want to feel things. And it almost makes you ashamed to feel things. Um, And so as a reader, it's kind of a painful sentence. And as a mother, I think this sentence is very painful. Um, you know, we have Harold Krebs who, you know, he, he's, he's struggling in this conversation with his mother and she's struggling too. And there's, there's a lot of tension there between these two people. And, um, the question in this sentence is about love and about that relationship. And there's just a a lot of pain here. Is Mrs. Krebs giving Harold a guilt trip intentionally, or is this as authentic a plea as a mother to a kind of distant, unresponsive son could possibly give? I think that this, um, that the character of Harold Krebs's mother has really been misunderstood, um, She's seen 
as sanctimonious. She's seen as emotionally manipulative. And I just, I don't feel like that's what's actually going on here in this story. Um, I feel like, you know, she, she loves him very much. This is, this is her, her child. This is her, uh, her son. He, you know, at one time was a, a tiny baby and she really did hold him next to her heart and she feels that love for him. And I think it's really important to, um, kind of accept that at face value that she's, you know, she's not trying to make him feel bad. I mean, why would she do that? Um, that this is, you know, legitimately a plea from her. Uh, she, she wants her son back. Um, and I just, uh, I think, I think it's kind of important, um, to get away from the idea that Harold Krebs and Hemingway have any kind of autobiographical similarities. Um, Harold Krebs is not Hemingway, and Mrs. Krebs is not Grace Hemingway. Um, and people have, have tried really hard, or actually they've not tried hard at all. They've just done it by default to, to read this story as autobiographical. Um, but Hemingway and Harold Krebs don't really have anything in common. And so I think in our haste, we... Uh, you know, we, we forget that and we overlook just how different they are and we can, uh, really misunderstand the damage that's been done to Harold. Um, and you know, Harold, uh, he, he's a college boy. He had, um, he had gone to a Methodist college. He was in a fraternity and, you know, neither of those details apply to him anyway. Um, but what they do tell us about Krebs is that when he left for the war, he was following a pretty conservative, straight and narrow path, somewhat unremarkable. You know, he, he went to college. He was a Protestant. He was a frat boy, but he wasn't Ivy League. He wasn't East Coast. Um, he didn't go to a big football school like Michigan. He, you know, he plays the clarinet. Um, he... He's in a fraternity where they all wear the same style and height of collar. He really fits in. And if you've ever been in those, you've ever seen those like fraternity pictures, you kind of know um, what Hemingway's talking about there. And, you know, and for whatever reason, he enlisted and he goes away with the Marines. And when he comes back, he, he comes back, you know, two years later and he's changed. Right. Um, and Mrs. Krebs, she doesn't really understand that. And she tries to understand that. So <laughs> she gets viewed as being very selfish, but, you know, she doesn't know what her son went through and how could she? Um, he won't talk about it. She asks about it, but she doesn't understand enough to really listen. And her, you know, her attention kind of wanders. Um, but the people who, are, who do talk about the war have gone back to their normal lives and she wants that for her son. And I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. You know, she wants him to get back to the way things were before. You know, the boy who was smart enough to go to college, right. popular enough to pledge a fraternity. Um, she she wants him to get a job. And, you know, why shouldn't she want those things? And, you know, she does have some sympathy for him. Like, she's not asking him to go back to college. She's not asking him 
to, you know, get a good job. She actually says, you know, all work is honorable. She just wants him to do something and she wants him to do an honest day's work. She's trying to give him the kind of things that he would have liked before the war, you know, they're letting him take the car out now. And, and, and I think people see that as showing how little their concerns are compared to what he's been through. But I think it also shows that she just doesn't understand. She's trying. The story also says she would give him breakfast in bed if he asked for it. You know, she's, she's trying to do the things that she knows how to do to be a good mother. Yeah. And it's just not. It's not landing with him. That's exactly. Yeah. So the, in the sentence that you chose, so she starts it by saying, I'm your mother and I'm your mother is we have a biological relationship and I'm going to, I'm going to call, I'm going to, you know, uh, pull that card. Uh, I'm, I'm your mother, uh, probably meant something different before the war than it did after the war. Right. And so, which is why she is trying to, it seems like she's trying to engage Krebs in the biological relationship that they have. Right. I'm your mother. You're my son. And also religion. Mm -hmm. And it seems like both of those, these things have it for Krebs have a wildly new definition now after World War One than they did before. Yeah, absolutely. And, and she, there's a real breakdown in communication between these two because, um, you know, she says, uh, don't you love your mother, dear boy? And he says, no. And his mother, <laughs> his mother looked at him across the table. Her eyes were shiny. She started crying. I don't love anybody, Krebs said. Um, so he's not telling her he doesn't love her, that it's her, you know. He doesn't love anybody. And when he says that, he really means it. And yeah. she... I think doesn't understand that. Like she doesn't understand that something in him has gone away. Um, and, you know, it, it hurts her and he kind of realizes that it hurts her and, sh and she's sitting there crying and he tries to make it up for her. So um, he tries to comfort her. He's kind of going through the motions, but, you know, nothing is really real to Krebs. Um, these relationships, they just, if they're complicated, he, he doesn't want them and he just can't, he can't do it. He has to, you know, he's got to look at maps to understand where he was in the war and the, you know, the only things he can do are things that he can find like guidance and rules for, you know, so he can still, um, play pool. He, um, he actually, at the end of the story goes off to watch the baseball game. You know, these are things that have set rules. People do the thing that they're supposed to do it, when it's their turn, but anything kind of complicated, like, uh, you know, the loving relationship he, he might've had with her before, or like religion, these things, you know, they don't, yeah, they don't mean anything to him anymore. They're too complicated. He, he just can't handle it. And he tries to, he tries to block that out. And she definitely does not understand that it's not personal, that it, it really is just, he can't deal with it. And of course she takes it personally. Yeah. So after this scene that you're uh, describing where it's, it's like an emotional game of chicken 
where they're just, you know, don't, do you love me? And then to get the answer, no, I can't imagine anything more, more, you know, terrible for a parent to, to hear or anybody to hear. But then in the last paragraph that you're, uh, that you were just referring to, there's this sentence still, none of it had touched him. So he's still not as, as devastating and as much pain as he's just caused his, uh, his mother. And then even he at, you know, during the scene was sick and vaguely nauseated. He's somehow different. He's there. You called it a communication gap. They're just not on the same page the way perhaps they might have been before the war. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And um, I think that this is a way that the story has been uh, not misread, but maybe um, not explored as fully as it as it could be, because we uh, we have, you know, mostly focused on Krebs and the effect of the war on him. Um, but one one way that I read the story now, just being a parent myself, is, you know, looking at it from the mother's perspective. And um, I think that we do Hemingway a disservice if we don't recognize that he has really captured uh, her pain here as well. And, you know, she's um, she's not a villain and she's not uh, an embarrassment, you know, and she's not. Um, she's not Grace <laughs> or what, you know, uh, what much later in Hemingway's life becomes the caricature of Grace. She is, you know, she's a mother who is deeply, deeply hurt and confused right. that the son she sent off to war has not returned to her. And the thing is, you know, he, he, um, he saw a lot of action in the war, but he came back alive. And as far as we can tell, he wasn't even wounded. And so she, you know, she doesn't understand because she's got her son back bodily. She doesn't realize that, you know, even though he's here in body, a part of him is missing. And it's not the same son that that went off to war. And that's, I think that's really painful for her. Well, Verna, earlier you were cautioning against people who read Krebs biographically. But you mentioned that World War I has been the kind of crucible experience for Krebs that we see in plenty of other Hemingway narratives mm -hmm. that before and after there's a, there's a massive change. Uh, in your investigation of Hemingway, uh, did you not find that World War I played the same role? For for Hemingway personally? Yes. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I think definitely – you know, it, it did. Um, I just think it's really important to note, uh, you know, some of the differences between them because, um, you know, with uh, Hemingway's experience of the war, it's very different from Krebs's. And um, I think Hemingway was definitely traumatized by his wound and you can't, <laughs> can't really underplay uh, the importance of the wound, you know, Philip Young made that, you know, such a, an important cornerstone of, of Hemingway studies early on. Um, but at the same time, you know, he, he saw some really dreadful things. He saw the, you know, one of the, his first tasks in the war was to clean up the body parts that got blown against a fence when a munitions factory right. exploded. Um, 
But his letters from this time are so odd because they are very energetic and um, almost jovial. And, you know, you might argue he's he's writing home and trying to make his parents not worry. But I don't know. They've got that authentic Hemingway, you know, spirit in them. It was um, no doubt terrible, but also kind of a great adventure for him. And he spent a good part of the war in hospital you know, recovering and and his relationship with women, you know, he had this amazing friendship turned love affair with Agnes and um, they had a a great correspondence. Unfortunately, you know, most of it is now missing to us, but, uh, you know, Harold had a a much different experience. Um, and, And Steve Trout has written an article for the Hemingway Review that kind of goes over um, Hemingway's, uh, I mean, not Hemingway's, there I did it, Krebs's yeah, right. experience of the, of the war um, and how much action he would have seen. But Krebs tells us about these girls that he encountered over there. And, and he, you know, he seems to have mainly been with um, sex workers who didn't speak English. And so, you know, he's fighting and, and, um, Hemingway's recovering in hospital and, and Krebs is occasionally sleeping with sex workers and that's all he wants to do with women. And Hemingway has this like massive love affair that was possibly slightly one-sided, it turns out. But, you know, to him, it was just this amazing experience. And Hemingway's in Italy, Krebs is in France and Germany. And it, there's just not a lot that lines up um, uh, biographically there. And in a way that you know, with Nick Adams, it gets a little blurrier, but with Harold Krebs, I just feel like this story is a real outlier uh, among the stories in, in, in our time because it is so different from Hemingway's own experience. And I don't think we can take what Hemingway said about grace late in life um, and apply it to reading this character of Mrs. Krebs in a story that was written in 1924, when Hemingway still had a very good relationship with his parents. Earlier, in a sort of a parallel scene to that that brutal conversation that Krebs has with his mother, he says, uh, his sister says, am I really your girl? Sure. Do you love me? Uh-huh. Will you love me always? Sure. Will you come over and watch me play indoor? Maybe, ah, hair, you don't love me if you love me. So it's almost like the family, that's how they communicate by challenging each other. <laughs> at, uh, the, they have to aff- constantly affirm one another's love. I mean, that, that's a kind of a brutal existence to be walking around the house with people, uh, you know, requiring tests of your <laughs> affection. No. Um, I, I didn't really think of it that way. That, that's a good point. Um, I was thinking of it more as a parallel to the conversation with the mother. And how he can't tell his mother that he loves her, but he can, you know, tell his sister. And he he does, at the end, uh, fulfill that challenge, and he goes to watch her baseball game. But I also just see that as Harold can't deal with grown women. He sees the patterns on their clothes, and he's attracted to their physical look. But he doesn't want to have to go talk to them, because that would be too complicated. And his relationship with his mother is complicated, um, I, this is another thing about this story that um, I find actually a little disturbing, which is the only women that he can connect with are children and sex workers. So he, he's okay with the 
um, the French and German girls that he, you know, presumably paid for sex, um, you know, over in the war. And he can talk to his little sister and he can tell her that he cares for her and he can go see her baseball game. But that's because, you know, she's, she's a child and it's just a, it's just a different relationship there. And he doesn't have that responsibility that he would have if he, you know, actually engaged with, with a grown woman. Yeah. With grown women, he sees it. He's talking about the uh, intrigue and the politics. He sees it as like a socio-political uh, uh, concern or dilemma. Why don't you read the sentence for us one more time so we remember it? Okay. His mother looked at him across the table. Her eyes were shiny. She started crying. I don't love anybody, Krebs said. I'm your mother, she said. I held you next to my heart when you were a tiny baby. Verna Kale, thank you so much for joining us on One True Podcast and playing One True Sentence with us. Thank you for having me. And thanks to you all for listening in. This episode is available on HemingwaySociety.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at OneTruePod. That's the number one true pod. Email us at one true pod at gmail.com or leave us a message at 321-209-1345. Our show is a production of the Hemingway Society and is supported by the University of Evansville and Florida Gulf Coast University. Join us next time as we continue exploring Hemingway, his work, and his world. Until then, I'm Mark Chirino with Michael Von Cannon, and this is One True Podcast. Oh,